Meet Gail. Her thing is being a supermom. And supermom has a lot on her supersized plate. <laughs> Ain't that the truth. But at Walmart Pharmacy, supermom recently got her whole family updated on all their vaccines. We knocked it out during a grocery run. No appointment. That's Next Level Supermom. From pneumonia to shingles, HPV, and more, get no-cost vaccinations from an expert pharmacist where you already shop. Welcome to an easier pharmacy. Welcome to your Walmart. $0 copay with most insurances. State age and health restrictions may apply. Good evening, everyone. We begin the readout tonight with another frightening day at the U.S. Capitol. Flags are at half staff for the second time this year. And one Capitol police officer is dead and another is injured after they were struck by a car at a security barrier on the Capitol's north side. After ramming into that barrier, the driver and suspect, 25-year-old Noah Green, got out of the car with a knife in his hand. Police say Green, who is from Indiana but most recently lived in Virginia, was shot after failing to respond to verbal commands. The suspect was then taken to the hospital where he died. And we still don't know the motive, but the Metropolitan Police said the incident does not appear to be terrorism-related. Congress was not in session at the time, and very few people were around. Acting Capitol Police Chief Yogananda Pittman released a statement on the slain officer William Billy Evans, noting with profound sadness that Officer Evans had been a member of the United States Capitol Police for 18 years and was a member of the Capitol Division's First Responders Union. A police procession took Officer Evans' body past the Capitol on its way to the medical examiner's office late this afternoon. According to the Capitol Police, the injured officer is in a stable, non-life-threatening condition. In a statement, President Biden said, Jill and I were heartbroken to learn of the violent attack at a security checkpoint on the U.S. Capitol grounds, which killed Officer William Evans of the U.S. Capitol Police and left a fellow officer fighting for his life. We send our heartfelt condolences to Officer Evans' family and to everyone grieving his loss. We know what a difficult time this has been for the Capitol, everyone who works there, and those who protect it. Today's incident prompted a huge security response with a helicopter landing on the east front of the Capitol and National Guard troops descending on the scene. The troops have been a part of an increased security presence at the Capitol since the insurrection on January 6th, where 140 officers were injured and one officer died. Before this year, only two other Capitol Police officers have ever been attacked and killed in the line of duty. Both were killed by a mentally ill gunman at the Capitol back in 1998. In a press conference shortly after today's incident, the acting Capitol Police chief stressed what a hard year it's been for the Capitol Police. Please keep the United States Capitol Police family uh, in your thoughts and prayers at this time. Uh, it has been an extremely difficult and challenging uh, year for us, but um, we will get through this and we do appreciate the community support. Let's go first to NBC News reporter Vaughn Hilliard at the Capitol. Vaughn, what can you tell us? What's the latest? Yeah, good evening, Joy. This is the scene here right behind us here. That car has since been towed here from just outside the Capitol. But there is now a perimeter around this greater Capitol complex here. And I got to tell you, when we're talking about law enforcement, you just said how tough of a year, tough of a 2021 this has been for Capitol Police, not only that of Officer Brian Sicknick, but as well as Officer Jeffrey Smith, who committed suicide in the days after that January 6th attack. A Metropolitan Capitol Police officer 
Howard Leibengood also committing suicide after January 6th. When you're talking about a community now losing Officer Billy Evans here this afternoon, you know, every police force oversees a community. For the Capitol Police, this is their community. This is the people they come to see every single day. This is the Capitol grounds, the staff, the members of Congress that they come here to protect every day. Billy Evans lost his life. At the hands of this individual who originally, to our understanding, is from Indiana, uh, most recently lived in Virginia, uh, our own Ben Collins has reported, based off of his Facebook page, that he has had recent posts uh, touting his uh, uh, connection to the Nation of Islam. Of course, this, the Southern Poverty Law Center uh, has, uh, has, has said that they are a hate organization, and, uh, and uh, Muslims have uh, vehemently rejected I uh, rejected the Nation of Islam, a, a black superiority organization here uh, led by Louis Farrakhan. Uh, of course, we're going to continue to learn more here in the coming days. Uh, what led this individual to go through this barrier here uh, two weeks after Constitution Avenue opened back up? I talked to this evening, Joy, uh, Lieutenant General Russell Honore, who was tapped by Speaker Pelosi to make an assessment after January 6th about what sort of security measures should be uh, built up around here after that insurrection. And I talked to him on the phone tonight, and he said that all of the assessments that he made and the recommendations he should make should be put into practice based off, again, these events here today. That calls, namely, for the hiring of more than 850 Capitol Hill or Capitol uh, uh, Police personnel, saying that they are understaffed inadequately trained. Uh, they don't have the proper equipment. He said that this man here, uh, Billy Evans, did his job today to protect the Capitol, and he lost his life as a result of it. But I just passed by dozens of them here this evening. They're still at work tonight protecting these Capitol grounds, and they will be overnight and into the days ahead. And he said that they need the backup and the funding resources. Joy. Vaughn Hillier, thank you so much for your reporting. Yeah, I'm sure the Capitol Police are having a uh the trauma, I can only imagine. Uh, it's been quite a year. Thank you so much. Joining me now is Congressman Benny Thompson of Mississippi, chair of the Homeland Security Committee, and Malcolm Nance, MSNBC counterterrorism and intelligence analyst. And Congressman, I want to go to you first, uh, based uh, particularly on your perch as Homeland Security chair. Um, what do you make of that? Because, you know, the Capitol Police are a very well-funded organization, about $430 million, or about 2,300 sworn officers. Is the issue here the need for more personnel, or is the issue the need, in your view, for more permanent infrastructure to physically protect the Capitol? Because now we've seen it breached uh, it, during an insurrection by a mob, a, a lynch mob, um, and now we've also seen there's vulnerability um, by, by, uh, to an attack by a vehicle. Well, it's a combination, uh, both things you've identified, but there's also a need to get the line of authority between the D.C. government and the, the Department of Defense. So we have to coordinate that. And it's difficult when you don't have a plan uh, to spell it out. I think the actions of January 6th and what unfortunate today, uh, we have to put that together. Uh, we've had General Honore's um, report. It spells it out. But we have a commitment from Congress uh, to fund it and a supplemental. Uh, we just have to do it. Uh, there cannot be any movement back from it. Uh, we have to secure the capital. 
And Malcolm, you know, just from a security point of view, I mean, obviously it is it is a public space. Ostensibly, it's meant to be accessed by the public. But at the same time, we know now that there are a great number of vulnerabilities. Um, Do you think that it is, in a sense, almost too complicated because it's not a state? There are limits to what the D.C. leadership can do. And there has to be so much coordination for any kind of a security response when something goes wrong. Well, there certainly are limits for D.C., uh, but the real issue is in the hands of the Capitol Hill police and the, the sergeant at arms of the Capitol. That, play, that, that site where the, where the incident occurred today on the north side of the Capitol, just a few weeks ago, that entry control point was not accessible. It was pushed all the way down to the intersection of Louisiana Avenue and New Jersey Avenue, and there were concrete Jersey barrier run-ins that a speeding car could not get through. So by raising that profile this week and allowing access up through there, uh, you know, that part of Constitution, Delaware Avenue, it just gave whoever decided that he was going to carry out an incident a slightly easier pathway. But, you know, we don't know what the, the intent of this of this driver was today. We know he, he obviously had some motivation to have himself killed, uh, suicide by cop, uh, and he did want to injure people in a place that was very high profile. So this is going to give us another reevaluation as to how we allow pedestrians and and vehicles to come around these entry control points. Uh, There will have to be a commission on this eventually to determine the entire parameter of how we're going to defend this facility. And I'm glad you brought that up, Malcolm, because, you know, there has been a lot of pressure uh, coming, particularly from Republicans, but some Democrats have, have voiced some concern about it, too, to, f- to sort of reopen the Capitol and make it more of a welcoming public space. Let me play for you uh, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell. There have been no serious threats against the Capitol. Uh, I think we're way overreacting to the current need. I'm extremely uncomfortable with the fact that my constituents can't come to the Capitol with all this razor wire around the uh, complex. Uh, It reminds me of my last visit to Kabul. Uh, To add to that, Marjorie Taylor Greene, the QAnon um, congresswoman, tweeted, uh, welcome to Fort Pelosi, sort of mocking the idea of all the Capitol security. And one more, just to go from the not so sublime to the absurd, here is a piece of the ad run by Colorado congresswoman and gun enthusiast Lauren Boebert. It's time to cut the crap and remember, this is the people's house. Madam Speaker, tear down this wall. With that flourish of a gun sound at the end, um, Congressman, that feels entirely premature because obviously, as Malcolm just explained, there are still a lot of security issues. Well, there's no question about it. And what you see there is the classic political response to a minority party. We have to secure the Capitol. The Capitol at this point is not secure. Uh, We can't guarantee that visitors who come or members of Congress for that point cannot be adequately protected. So we have to do what we have to do. It's unfortunate that the Republican, my Republican colleagues and others uh, choose to politicize security at our nation's capital. Sure, everyone would want visitors to visit the capital, uh, but if we can't guarantee their safety, then we should not allow that to occur. 
And Malcolm, would you recommend reestablishing some of the uh, really sort of overwhelming security force that we saw um, after the insurrection? Do you think that needs to go back up, at least in part? You know, I've done security assessments all around the world, including some big Arab capitals and in Kabul and, uh, and, and, and Baghdad. Uh, It's going to have to look like Kabul for a little while because the insurrection and the attack on the capital gave our nation's enemies, including some of those who were overseas like ISIS, a baseline on how to attack the capital. Uh, And we have to create a system of entry control points that allow those visitors to come in there not only to feel safe, but to be safe. Because what you don't want to do is just have the gates all come down and then have somebody carry out, let's say, a vehicle driving attack where, you know, you just drive through the, you know, the, the parking lot and go through, you know, injure people who might be there from an Iowa high school. We need yeah. to make the entire campus secure. Yeah, it, it, I think it seems it, see, it would seem so obvious, but unfortunately, it's political. And uh, we'll have you back on, Representative, to talk more about your lawsuit, which is dealing with one aspect of what happened on January 6th, obviously the instigation of it. But, yeah, obviously there's some security um, sort of lapses there that still need to be dealt with at the Capitol. Mm-hmm. Congressman Benny Thompson, Malcolm Nance, thank you both. Be well. And up next on The Readout, the Matt Gates scandal gets even more sordid, if that's even possible. Allegations of paid-for sex, booze, drugs, and child trafficking. It's all there. And a Florida lawmaker joins me on the very strange phone message that she received from Gates and his indicted pal. Plus, a dramatic week of testimony comes to an end as George Floyd's family seeks justice for his death. Just how bad was this week for Derek Chauvin? Let's put it this way. Some of the most damning testimony came from fellow police. And Georgia Republicans quickly learned that there are serious consequences to their voter suppression law as Major League Baseball pulls this year's All-Star Game out of the state. The readout continues after this. New reporting on the investigation of Congressman Matt Gates is so lurid It's hard to believe he still holds a position of public trust. In fact, his communications director resigned today in the wake of the latest revelations. People close to the federal probe tell The New York Times that investigators are scrutinizing Gates' involvement with multiple women who were recruited online for sex and received cash payments. Those women were reportedly procured by Gates' associate, Joel Greenberg the former Florida tax collector who's now facing almost three dozen criminal charges, ranging from the production of fake IDs and identity theft to sex trafficking a child. The Times reports that Greenberg recruited the women through websites that connect people who go on dates in exchange for gifts, fine dining, travel, and allowances. People with knowledge of the encounter say Greenberg then introduced the women to Mr. Gates, who also had sex with them. The story also details how Gates and Greenberg would pay the women, noting that the women themselves even told friends the payments were indeed for sex. However, Gates is once again denying the conduct under investigation. In a statement to NBC News, his lawyer said Matt Gates has never paid for sex and refutes all of the disgusting allegations completely, unquote. This comes on top of the news this week that investigators are probing whether Gates had a sexual relationship with a 17-year-old girl, which he denies. Pandora makes it easy for you to find your favorite music. Discover new artists and genres by selecting any song or album, and we'll make you a personalized station for free. Download on the Apple App Store or Google Play and enjoy the soundtrack to your life. It's that time of the year. 
Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Now, two people with the investigation have told The Times that the sex trafficking count against Mr. Greenberg involved the same girl. The revelations are not only damning on their face, but they link Gates even closer to Greenberg who denies the charges against him and is currently in jail pending trial. According to the Daily Beast, text messages from former employees at Greenberg's tax office helped lead investigators to Gates. Additionally, the Daily Beast acquired a a strange voicemail that portrays their apparent chummy relationship. It's a message they left for Florida State Representative Anna Eskamani in 2019, one of many contacts, which she described as weird. My dear Anna, this is your favorite tax collector. I'm up in the panhandle with your favorite U.S. Congressman, Mr. Gates. Hi, Anna. And uh, we were just chatting about you and talking about your lovely qualities. And your... We think you're the future of the Democratic Party in Florida. Well, see, I know you're the future of it, so there's no thinking involved. Anyway, uh, if you get this and you feel like chatting, give me a shout back. Representative Escamani is now calling on Congressman Gates to resign in the wake of the Times reporting. And I'm joined now by Florida State Representative Anna Escamani and Cynthia Oxney, former federal prosecutor. Representative Escamani, I, I must start with you on this on this uh, weird, rather creepy voicemail. What did you take the purpose of that voicemail to be? Well, thank you so much, Joy, for having me. Honestly, when I saw my phone ringing and he was calling, I didn't pick up because we didn't have that type of relationship to expect a phone call. And I was even more surprised to listen to the voicemail and hear not only his voice, but Congressman Matt Gates' voice as well. So for me, I mean, it seemed like they wanted to try to get closer to me, try to have some sort of chummy conversation with me, which again, um, I really do draw the line between personal and professional, especially when it comes to other elected officials. I, I, I hate to be I feel like this whole thing. I need a shower just having read the intro to this. But I'm sorry to have to ask you this on, on national television. But did you get the sense you're a Democrat, right? You're not a member of. Uh, of OK. Did you get the sense that uh, Mr. Greenberg wanted to date you? Did this seem like a sort of <laughs> romantic outreach in sort of the college sophomore level? Did it seem like they wanted to go out? with? What did you think they wanted from you? Yeah, I mean, it's a it's an uncomfortable question, but I think it's an important one when it comes to the experiences of many women in politics is that we're constantly objectified. We're constantly not seen as as valid contributors to policy, but instead as as objects of pleasure and as something to look at versus to respect. And so, yes, I, I absolutely got the the feeling that it was very much, you know, an attempt at an intimate conversation. I mean, even the notion of your lovely qualities, that alone was very cringeworthy for me. But- but the last question on this on this line, and then I will move on, I, I promise. Do you worry in light of what we've now learned about Matt Gates and Mr. Greenberg and what they were up to and things like uh, allegations uh, from CNN that Gates would show off pictures um, to fellow lawmakers of women he 
nude women that he claims that he had slept with, quote, it was a point of pride, one of the sources said of Gates. And also that Mr. Greenberg was trafficking women and attempting to get them to have sex with him and maybe the congressman for money. Did you wor- do you, when you look back on it, do you worry that they were trying to lure you into something that would have been along those lines, the trafficking world lines? I think it's a very valid question and a very valid concern. I mean, th- these are the signs of trying to groom people to do what you want them to do. And when I look back at my entire engagement with Mr. Greenberg over the past, I would say, maybe three, four years, I always try to keep a, a distance between us. But there was a lot of just pushy behavior, coercive behavior, you know, attempting to make a conversation go into more intimate direction than that I would want it to go. And so there, there definitely were signs of that. And again, I think it's so important that women, especially women in politics, share their stories, because unfortunately for, for me, it's just another day of being a woman in politics. Yeah. And I just want to let our, our audience know, Cynthia, we're having a little bit of trouble with her shot right now. We're going to try to get her back. But I, I guess, can I, may I ask, and I normally would never ask this question. It's a question I just generally don't ask, but how old are you? If you don't mind my asking. <laughs> I am a uh, young but feeling very old, 30-year-old. <laughs> okay, but you're, so you're not in the, right, okay, so I just wanted, I, I don't, I'm just checking that because of the sort of line of, uh, of sort of reasoning around what they were doing. Did you at any point suspect that Mr. Greenberg was engaged in any kind of illegal activity? Did he strike you as somebody, just, just, I'll just leave it there. Did you ever suspect that he was engaged in any kind of illegal activity? He's, he's accused of a lot of different varieties of illegal activity. Did you ever suspect that? It's a great question. You know, I first interacted with him because he had posted uh, 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 comments on his Facebook page that were Islamophobic in nature. So many members of the Central Florida community, the Muslim-like community, called him out for it. They invited me to join the space, and I also called him out for it. And then he attacked me on Twitter, uh, threatening me politically, and then turned around and apologized and was seeking some sort of support from me. So it was was a very just... uh, um, uh, really difficult dynamic and trying to, you know, maintain some sense of professionalism and kindness while also realizing that this person is, is just kind of all over the place. He doesn't really have yeah. a lot of stability. And I, and I think the, the rest of it speaks to the fact that uh, he was engaged in some pretty ridiculous and inappropriate behavior, but I don't think any of us could have expected it to be this bad. Yeah, no, I was I was saddened when I read the line in the Daily Beast piece that you were quoted saying that you sort of try to deal with it so that you're not like thrown in as the B word, which is a a thing I think a lot of women in public life recognize. Okay, Cynthia, we've got you back. Walk us through because this is a really gross story, but I know that you are a very experienced sex crimes prosecutor. If you were looking at this case, just looking at it from your prosecutorial eye, does it appear to you that Mr. Gates might have been a customer of whatever it is Mr. Greenberg was doing, or where would you start to, to, if you were investigating this case? Well, I think where uh, where it's going is that, my, my guess would be is that Greenberg, they're trying to get him to flip against Gates. I mean, that's he has 33 or something charges against him. He's in big trouble, and he obviously knows a lot about Gates. And, you know, there's a temptation in the press for us to kind of almost enjoy the demise of Gates because he's such a creepy miserable, insufferable human being. But recognize we're talking about girls here. We're talking about this is a criminal investigation. This is not a this is not a sex scandal in the classic D.C. way. Uh, I think he's looking at sex trafficking. He may be looking at pornography charges. He may be looking. It's not going to surprise me if there aren't campaign finance charges. 
drug charges. Uh, so he has a very serious problem. My guess is that will begin with, with a role by his friend Greenberg. Let me read a little bit from the New York Times piece. In some cases, Mr. Gates asked women to help find others who might be interested in having sex with him and his friends, according to two people familiar with those conversations. Some of the men and women took ecstasy, an illegal mood-altering drug, before having sex, including Mr. Gates. Two people familiar with the encounters said. Um, is that what you mean? That, that, because it, that, that is gross, but that, is that also trafficking? Well, yeah, well, it may or may not. It certainly is a drug crime, right? It's a Schedule yeah. One drug. Um, if they're going across state lines and they're under 18 and they're getting something of value, it's a trafficking yeah. crime. If they're going across state lines for the purposes of prostitution, it's a different crime. If he's using campaign money to pay for it, it's a different crime. So it, it, there's, you know, a whole host of crimes. Um, but I guess it doesn't really surprise anyone that you'd have to really take drugs to have sex with Matt Gates. <laughs> I, I mean, yeah, I, yeah, that's, that's not gross. going to shock anyone. The Daily Beast uh, notes that <laughs> text messages may have led uh, the feds to Gates. In January of 2020, per the Daily Beast, U.S. Secret Service agents received information in the form of text messages that purportedly showed that Matt Gates had accompanied Joel Greenberg to an unusual nighttime visit to a government office. The Daily Beast also obtained images of text messages that purport to show Greenberg helped Gates duplicate IDs. That's one of the things he's charged with is making fake IDs. And I guess I'll have to ask you this again, back to another uncomfortable question, uh, Representative Eskamani. Have you ever gotten a text message, an odd text message from either Mr. Gates or Mr. Greenberg? And have you been contacted by any of these federal authorities to perhaps uh, offer what you know uh, to investigators? Well, I have spoken to uh, many of my colleagues and trying to get more people to share their stories about Congressman Matt Gates, when he was a state house representative, you know, we did not serve together, but I, I did meet him on the House floor once where he told me that my friend Joel Greenberg talks about you all the time. So again, just further demonstrating the relationship they both had and also this obsession with talking about women. And, and so I'm happy to talk to any authority at this point. Um, it seems like the investigators are doing a, an excellent job in, in collecting evidence. And, and I've told everyone that if you haven't engaged in this, you need to speak out and you need to let us know because we will find you anyways. Yeah. And I think that is such an important note to end on. And I'm sure that you would echo that as well, um, Cynthia, that, you know, particularly girls under age, if you have any information. Right. right? I mean, people should don't be afraid. Right. Come forward. Yeah. Right. It, it, that. But there's also the, the question is, if he's showing naked pictures of women and girls on the House floor, what is he doing on these important committees in Congress? And why are other Republican, you know, family values uh party members doing something so that he's not in charge of anything. Uh, absolutely. Correct. Florida Congresswoman uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene and the other QAnon congressmen are supposed, supposedly you guys care about child sex trafficking. That's like your whole, you know, religion. Where are all the Q people? And you're right. Where's Kevin McCarthy? Does Kevin McCarthy have any plans to maybe take him off some of these committees? We wait to find out. Florida, Se uh, Florida State Representative Anna Eskamani, thank you so much for enduring my very uncomfortable questions. And Cynthia Oxy, my friend, thank you very much. Appreciate you both. Have a great weekend. Still ahead. Ooh, need a shower. I think everybody needs a shower now. The latest oh, from Minneapolis, Derek, Minneapolis former police uh, officer Derek Chauvin's trial. The defense attorney vowed to show that Chauvin did as he was trained to do in his encounter with George Floyd. Well, what did his superiors have to say about that? Stay with us.
first week of the murder trial of former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin is now over. It began with some very dramatic and tearful testimony from eyewitnesses to George Floyd's senseless death. And then it turned to the more technical elements of the case, hearing from first responders and police officers honing in on Chauvin's culpability after the defense made this declaration at the start of the trial. You will learn that Derek Chauvin did exactly what he had been trained to do over the course of his 19-year career. But as we began to hear yesterday from Chauvin's former shift supervisor, that was not the case. And that continued today with the head of the Minneapolis Police Department's homicide unit, the most experienced police officer in the department, who called Chauvin's use of force totally unnecessary and uncalled for. Have you ever, in all the years you've been working for the Minneapolis Police Department, uh, been trained to kneel on the neck of someone who is handcuffed behind their back in a prone position? No, I haven't. If you, as an officer, according to the training, you handcuff somebody behind the back, what's your responsibility with regard to that person from that moment on? Um, that person is yours. Um, he's your responsibility. Uh, his safety is your responsibility. As part of your training within the Minneapolis Police Department policies, uh, is there an obligation to provide medical intervention when necessary? Absolutely. Joining me now, Paul Butler, former federal prosecutor, and Mark Claxton, retired NYPD detective and director of the Black Law Enforcement Alliance. And Mark, I'm coming straight to you with this. I thought today's testimony was devastating. Uh, Officer Zimmerman, with that, with, you know, with all of his experience, got up there and he said a lot of things about the use of force um, that he said was totally unnecessary. Let me play one more piece that I thought was sort of the line of the day. This is Lieutenant uh, Richard Zimmerman describing the level of force that would be associated with placing your knee on someone's neck. What level of force might that be? That would be the top tier, the deadly force. Why? Because of uh, the fact that um, if, if your knee is on a person's neck, that can kill them. Uh, Mark, the defense attempted to, in the very start of the trial, portray what Derek Chauvin did as per his training. But that's not what Lieutenant Zimmerman said. What say you? Is there anything in police training that says that you ought to ram your knee and rest it on the back of someone's neck while they are prone for nine minutes plus? Absolutely not. Not in training and not in common sense. As a matter of fact, I think uh, what's occurred during the course of the trial is that the supervisors, those people who supervise the police officers, in a lot, in a lot, a lot of ways they, they set policy, are clearly trying to disassociate themselves completely from the conduct of Derek Chauvin and reject his actions, you know, as an attempt to, to, to ensure that there is no even conversation moving forward when Derek Chauvin's in jail and in prison and off the record about uh, reforming police in a particular way or reimagining police. Their priority right now is defending the integrity of their department and the profession. And they are more than willing to be honest about just how 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 uh, um, unlawful Derek Chauvin's actions are. 
And, and I just want to note that, you know, that, that Mr. Zimmerman, Lieutenant Zimmerman, had actually written a letter. He was one of 14 Minneapolis police officers who wrote a letter <clears throat> um, condemning Chauvin's actions. Uh, it was posted two weeks after George Floyd's death, and it said in part, Derek Chauvin took an oath to hold the sanctity of life most precious. Derek Chauvin failed as a human and stripped George Floyd of his dignity in life. That is not who we are. And the defense, you know, may have tried to make hay of that. But, um, Paul, th- this case to me seems to be rolling the wrong way for Derek Chauvin. I've never seen a case that seemed stronger um, for the prosecution of a police officer because you've got other officers damning what he did. You've got no support, even when the defense tries to come back and get them to go along. They're not playing ball. Let me show you a piece here where they tried to use something that we're all used to, the sort of we have to be able to fight for our lives defense. And here is this cut to for my producers. Here is the defense attorney trying that. You would agree, however, that in a fight for your life, generally speaking, uh, in a fight for your life, you as an officer are allowed to use whatever force is reasonable and necessary, correct? Yes. And that can even involve improvisation, agreed? Uh, Yes. Based on your review of the body cams, did you see any need for Officer Chauvin to improvise by putting his knee on Mr. Floyd for nine minutes and 29 seconds? No, I did not. I mean, it does. It hurts a little bit that yesterday we heard testimony that the man was dead. I don't know if you're fighting for your life against a dead man. But anyway, Paul Butler, what do you make of the way things went today and in the trial so far? Hey, it's Mel Robbins. Let's cut to the chase. There is a change you want to make right now, but you're waiting to feel motivated. You don't need motivation. You've got me. You can change your life anytime you want. And when you're ready, the Mel Robbins podcast is here to help you with inspiration and simple science-backed tools to help you create a better life. Listen to me and you'll feel motivated, all right. Listen and follow the Mel Robbins podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Today's cross-examined by Chauvin's defense attorney tried to make the point that Mr. Floyd was still a threat even though Mr. Floyd was in handcuffs on his stomach, and even though he had no pulse, he still might wake up and attack Chauvin. Uh, I I think that that argument is not going to be persuasive to the jury. Uh, I think that in a way it insults the intelligence of the jury. So these police officer witnesses, Joy, have two purposes. First, the jury is hearing from police professionals that Derek Chauvin is a bad cop who used excessive force. And the second is that prosecutors are sending the message to jurors who might generally support police officers. We're not trying to say that all cops are bad. We just need you to send this one rotten officer to jail. Do you think very quickly, Paul, that uh, the fact that Chauvin was fired, do you think that ends up coming in? I haven't heard it yet, but do you think that will come in? No, it, the judges already uh, ordered that the jury can know that Chauvin is not a member of the police department anymore, but they cannot be told that he was fired. Okay. Uh, well, we will keep on watching. It's quite a trial. Paul Butler, Mark Claxton, thank you both. Have a wonderful weekend. And still ahead on the readout, major voter suppression fallout in Georgia. Major League Baseball knocks one out of the park with a huge announcement about the Atlanta All-Star Game. Stay with us. Thank you. 
Major League Baseball announced today that they will no longer hold this year's All-Star Game and baseball draft in Atlanta, Georgia. In a brief statement, the commissioner of baseball explained that Major League Baseball fundamentally supports voting rights for all Americans and opposes restrictions to the ballot box. Georgia Governor Brian Kemp, a guy yearning for Trump's warm embrace, called the move a knee-jerk decision in response to woke cancel culture. Oh, Brian, Brian, Brian. That's a real cute catchphrase, but I'm pretty sure you just did the exact same thing with the legislation that you just signed, which, let's be honest, is a knee-jerk reaction to your party losing. And now, instead of reevaluating your message, you're just canceling out thousands of voters. Stay classy, Brian. Kemp's likely 2022 challenger, Stacey Abrams, issued her own statement, writing, like many Georgians, I'm disappointed that the MLB is relocating the All-Star game. However, I commend the players, owners, and league commissioner for speaking out. I urge others in positions of leadership to do so as well. Atlanta Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms uh, reprimanded Republicans for causing the backlash, tweeting, just as elections have consequences, so do the actions of those who are elected. Unfortunately, restricting voting access is a trend that is being repeated in legislatures across the country. Overnight, Republicans in the Texas state Senate passed legislation that would impose additional restrictions on voting, including reducing early voting hours, prohibiting drive through voting and allowing activist poll watchers to film voters getting assistance, which sounds a lot like voter intimidation. Just as in Georgia, the Texas restrictions just happen to target predominantly diverse and largely Democratic counties. Quite the coincidence. Texas-based corporations like American Airlines, Dell Technologies, and Microsoft aren't making the same mistake that Coca-Cola and Delta Airlines did by being slow on the uptake. They were out quickly with statements publicly opposing the bill. Joining me now is Tiffany Cross, host of The Cross Connection on MSNBC, and Jason Johnson, professor of journalism and politics at Morgan State University, one of our favorite duos on the television Tiffany, I got to start with you. I am struck uh, not only by Major League Baseball's, you know, pretty strong statement here being like we're yanking the game, but also the corporate reaction that was so quick in Texas. You didn't have American Airlines waiting around for people to talk boycott. They were like, we oppose the bill in advance. Right. But that didn't happen on its own. You know, like I refuse to think that corporate America just has this heavy heart and is so concerned about voter suppression. That is the work of activists. That's the work of folks like Latasha Brown and Black Voters Matter. That is the influence of activists in Georgia that cast a wide net of influence from Georgia to Texas and all across the Bible Belt and all up through the Midwest, because this type of voter suppression is not just limited to the southern states. It's happening everywhere since they struck down Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act. So I applaud the people out there who are taking it to the streets. But the bottom line is here, Joy, you just laid out very well in your open um, the, the massive voter suppression effort happening. The federal elections at this point or the election process needs to be federally regulated. This is why it's so important for us to focus on H.R. 1, which would federalize and regulate the election process all across the country. As long as we have people who are laser focused on attacking black voters, who saved this democracy, quite frankly, we need to be focused on saving black voters. And I, I think as long as we leave that up to Republican control, uh, controlled state legislatures, we'll continue to see this type of uh, draconian and egregious action taken against us. Yeah. And Jason, you know, the the, the, the Republicans are, are really in sort of self-preservation mode, right? Trying to use this as a moment to yell against uh, uh, sort of woke culture. But you had Greg Bluestein uh, from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution 
reporting that um, that he's getting texts from Democrats and Republicans uh, are full of sentiments like this. This MLB decision just helped Governor Kemp rally the base in a potential primary challenge this year, meaning against a further right-wing Republican. You've got a lot of Republicans sort of on the national level who, let's just be honest, have no real platform. Lindsey Graham and people like uh, Ted Cruz yelling and Kelly Leffler, who got booted from her, her um, WNBA team, yelling. What do you think the political fallout of this will be in Georgia and elsewhere? So, it, Joy, it, it depends on the place, right? Brian Kemp is desperately, desperately, desperately trying to make sure that he's the one that loses to Stacey Abrams next year. That's why he's doing it. He thinks somehow if he plays these games that the Republicans will forget the fact that he sold out the state to the Democrats and Joe Biden and everything else like that. And it's not going to help. I still think Brian Kemp is still going to get primary. I still think Brian Kemp is going to lose his job. But, hey, he's going to keep doing this sort of Don Quixote chasing after windmills and think it's going to help him. I think the national implications, though, it's going to trickle down depending on the state. Georgia is a, a, a state that has a growing population, international businesses, and the eyes of the entire world on them. So Delta and Coca-Cola and Bank of America, they don't want this smoke. They don't need this hassle. So they're going to pay attention. But that's not Texas, and that's not Louisiana, and that's not Michigan, states that may not have international businesses located there. And quite frankly, states where the Republicans are like, we don't care. We'd rather starve then allow black and brown people to vote. That's the issue that we're facing. So I, I think that you're going to see some changes in Georgia. At some point, they're going to pull back some part of this. They're going to they're going to maybe expand some semblance of voting rights one way or another. But the real issue, as Tiffany mentioned, see, giving Tiff credit, the real issue is going to be there's going to have to be a federal floor set for voting. Because the issue, unfortunately, is that state legislatures can move a lot faster than the courts can. And even if this were to be overturned and even if a court were to get rid of it, they would try something else next August, right before the midterm elections, to put themselves back in a position of being able to suppress the votes of anybody else who might vote them out of office. Yeah, absolutely. But, you know, the lesson here, Tiffany, I feel like, you know, Dr. King toward the end was saying, you know, we may want to boycott Coca-Cola. And he named Coca-Cola specifically and said that the black dollar should not go where our votes are not welcome and where we're not able to be employed. It does seem like activists, as you've said, have taken a really strong step here toward issuing some correction and making businesses pay for it because there's no boycott of Georgia. This is telling these corporate um, big companies, you better use your influence with these politicians and they give money to people in Texas, too. They give money to them people in Michigan, too. Republicans get money all over the country from these big corporations. They fund a lot of these GOP efforts and a lot of these GOP candidates. And so we know power concedes nothing without demand. And so as long as we are waiting around for people to just find their conscience, we've seen that's not going to happen. So that's that's precisely the type of work that it takes to where you have to find that pressure point and push and keep pushing. And I know there are a lot of people at home wondering, well, what can I do? You know, I, I keep seeing these things happen. I mean, look, there are people who live in Republican uh, led districts that were only elected it because of voter suppression. It is a lie. Here's another part of the big lie that half the country is aligned politically, morally, or ethically with the Republican Party. The devil is a lie. That's not true. It just looks that way because they have employed these types of draconian tactics since the beginning of time, since we've always had a, a voting to, to begin with. And it's just amazing joy that we are still here fighting this exact same thing. This weekend is the anniversary of when we lost Dr. Martin Luther King and the things that he fought for 
and his children and children's children are still here fighting for these same rights. It's exhausting as we go through this, as we watch, you know, yet another trial of a black man gunned down and still fighting voting rights. It feels like time is a flat circle and uh, it's enraging. Uh, As James Baldwin said, to have any level of consciousness is to be enraged uh, uh, this week. So yeah, uh, I won't give Dr. Jason Johnson credit, but he did kind of make a good point. We your Twitter. Uh, we gonna wait for wow. y'all Twitter fight later. Wow. Jason Johnson. Uh, you know the the thing that does seem to me to be obvious is just as these corporations are gonna have to take action because they do fear the boycott, right? Um, and so you're seeing them have to get on the right. right side of history. But I don't see where Brian Kemp comes out of this on top, nor the Republicans in the state legislature. This is just going to make the Stacey Abrams and the Latasha Browns work harder to get rid of all of them, and then they will be like Kelly Leffler, former elected officials. Yeah. And that's the thing, Joy, what is always so critical. And I just I talked I interviewed Latasha for this for, for my podcast on Slate this week. You have to understand also that Atlanta is growing by about a thousand people in the metro area every week. And new people coming into the state are like, what the heck? We don't we're not interested in this. We're not trying to fight over uh, trans issues and voting rights and everything else like that. The, the Republicans are fighting a losing demographic battle in this state when they try to keep people from voting. It's not going to help Brian Kemp. It's not going to help the secretary of state. It's not going to help the party as a whole, because at the end of the day, what does anybody know? The, the, the vendors and the fans and everybody else right now in the city of Atlanta is like, we just lost a baseball game because you guys were trying to make us stay in line. That doesn't end up helping anyone. And I want to mention this also about not helping. The Atlanta Braves, okay, the, the white flight Braves that are you know hiding out in Cobb County right now, they didn't help themselves either. Little advice, shutting up is free. And when the All-Star game decided, when MLB said, we're not going to come to the state, the Braves should have just been quiet about it. There was no value for them to come out and criticize this decision because now they appear to be on the wrong side of history, just like Brian Kemp. Yeah, absolutely. I have a very quick turn. I'm going to give this final one to Tiffany Cross. You win this round because we're going to go ladies get to close it out. Just as a, on a different turn, uh, John Boehner is talking. I don't know if you're going to talk about this this weekend uh, on the cross connection, but here's a quote in his new book. He describes Ted Cruz this way. There is nothing more dangerous than a reckless expletive. You guys can guess what it is. Who thinks that he's smarter than everyone else? Ladies and gentlemen, meet Senator Ted Cruz. Does anybody like Ted Cruz that you've been able to discern as you've been covering his political career? Is there anyone? And I do include his daughters in that. Does anyone at this point like this guy? Joy, I please allow me to confirm these vicious rumors. Ted Cruz has yet to identify a friend, an ally, an associate, anybody who has anything remotely polite to say about him. He is the boil on the on the on democracy. He is the thorn in everybody's side. He is the embarrassment uh, to the state of Texas. And like you said, even his own family doesn't like him, uh, which we can tell because he threw them under the bus when he uh, went down he to Mexico. Daughters. Yeah, he blamed his kids. He's terrible. But the big question is, Texas, what are y'all going to do about it? We yes. don't want to deal with your problem. Come on, Texas. Discard him Come on, Texas. Texas. Come through and give us somebody else. I think the Castro brothers might be free for something. Tiffany Cross and Jason Dawes, if there's ever a scandal about people paying for people to be their friend, we know that that's not going to be Matt Gaze. Oh, it might be him, too, but it's going to be Ted Cruz. You can watch Tiffany's show, The Cross Connection, tomorrow morning at 10 a.m. Eastern, right here on MSNBC. Jason Johnson might be on, and then they can continue their banter on their show, on Tiffany's show, which will be great. Hey, it's Mel Robbins. 
Let's cut to the chase. There is a change you want to make right now, but you're waiting to feel motivated. You don't need motivation. You've got me. You can change your life anytime you want. And when you're ready, the Mel Robbins podcast is here to help you with inspiration and simple science-backed tools to help you create a better life. Listen to me and you'll feel motivated, all right. Listen and follow the Mel Robbins podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.